Welcome to Slow Stories. I'm Rachel Schwartzman. I'm a writer, consultant, and the creator and host of this podcast. For those of you just tuning in, I interview artists, entrepreneurs, and innovators who share slow stories and big ideas about living, working, and creating in our digital age. This episode begins with a story from Amy Snook, who shares a book that reminded her to slow down and appreciate the simpler things in life. Here's more from Amy. My name is Amy, and I'm the founder and CEO of Perea Books, the first reader-centric publishing company. Something that made me slow down recently was reading the book called Silence in the Age of Noise. It's written by a Norwegian Arctic explorer, and it's all about reducing the noise in our lives and just being really comfortable with silence and appreciating silence. I read it during a time when I was processing a difficult breakup, and it really prompted me to simplify. It prompted me to spend at least an hour every morning walking my dogs in nature, It prompted me to reduce the number of things I have in my life instead of trying to add to them. I think a lot of us, we want to add stuff. We want to buy stuff. We want to sign up for things. And I think actually reducing and making life even more simple is really the key to happiness. And it encouraged me to spend an entire day without my phone. And it was one of the most liberating experiences I've had because it enabled me to just exist. I just sat on the couch with my thoughts. I sat by the beach with my thoughts and I didn't tell anyone any of them. I didn't reach to see who was trying to contact me. I simply existed in a really beautiful, simple way. Thank you so much again to Amy for sharing. Again, the book she mentioned is Silence in the Age of Noise, and you can learn more about her company, Perea, at pereabooks.com. Now here's my conversation with Naj Austin. Think about the places you frequent most. What's the experience like? How does it make you feel? How are you connecting? And who are you connecting with? Whether online or offline, Naj Austin has been exploring these questions through her visionary endeavors, which include Ethel's Club, and most recently, Somewhere Good, an audio platform for intimate community conversations. With its distinct design-driven app and a growing suite of partnerships and offline offerings, Somewhere Good is poised to become a leader in how we can authentically connect in our complex digital age. For Naj, shifting away from scrolling our feed towards feeding our relationships remains a through line in her life. And with that comes recalibrating how we pay attention to ourselves and each other online and off. And in this interview, Naj shared more about the role of slowness and solitude in her work, her relationship with listening, and the importance of community participation. In an age of so much uncertainty, Naj's steadfast commitment to community building was a welcome reminder that moving slowly and steadily really does win the day. And once you hear from Naj, you'll see what I mean. So on that note, here's my conversation with Naj Austin, founder of Somewhere Good. specifically of the Atlantic and the New York magazine and 
I am a person who cares deeply about my family and friends. All amazing things. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Summit, New Jersey, a very small town known for our lacrosse and tree line streets. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Did you play? I played in sixth grade. And by played, I mean, I had a lacrosse stick. So do with that what you will. I wish I had athleticism, like natural athleticism, but doesn't seem to be in the cards. Yeah. I gave up on that a while ago. But I'm sure that was like a nice introduction into community, which is such a core part of your life today. Oh, absolutely. I think even my family within it, my mom's a child of nine. I have 25 first cousins. I was born into a either a sports team and or a community of people who I would say generally all have this similar sort of goal in life and, and leaned on each other when we needed to. It was a really nice way to grow up. I can imagine. Can you tell me a little bit more about a space that is so important to you in terms of being somewhere good or an environment that conjures that vision for you? Absolutely. The first one that comes to mind is definitely my grandmother, Ethel, who I named Ethel's Club after. And her home was so alive and dynamic. I almost feel like my memories are a little bit romanticized at this point of sort of like a constant swinging door and there were neighbors and my family and there were toys and music and there's always food cooking and someone was dancing and there were kids doing homeworks like under the table and it was just so vibrant and I'm a middle child of five I feel like that's always important to say (laughs) as an introduction to me but I sort of play the role of peacekeeper in my family and I was always a little bit on the periphery I'm never in front never in the back I'm literally always kind of in the middle and I think being inside her home all I did was sort of watch what was going on I was always in the grown people's business I always knew what was going on over there I was sort of kind of making sure the kids were playing and behaving I was always in the kitchen helping and it just sort of felt like this you're kind of like the eye of the storm it sounds like yeah a little bit as as you just as you were saying that I was like I was kind of somehow involved in everything but also kind of involved in nothing it was just very best word I have is just kind of alive and I think I've taken that feeling and wanted it to be felt in everything that I've built from Ethel's Club to somewhere good in my personal home this feeling that there's life there um, and you feel it immediately What's a story that Ethel shared with you that has sort of become a through line in your own life, even outside of your professional endeavors? I'm a big believer in the grandparent-grandchild relationship, so I'm always curious to hear what's passed through generationally. Yeah, I think the biggest one is the importance of keeping your people close, whatever that means to you, whether it's a blended family, a chosen family, just sort of making space and time for them in big or small ways. She was a big fan of who wants to go on an errand with me? And you know, all the grandkids are vying (laughs) for the position to go to the grocery store. But those are some of my my favorite memories are her and I at the grocery store. She was big on gum and you got a half of a piece. It was always half, never the whole piece in the car. And you got to push the cart, which my mom never let me do for some reason. So I think that was really important to me. You saw how she looked at food and held it and sort of made choices. And, you know, as someone who cooks a lot and considers that a core part of my life now and part of my creative practice, I come back to those memories often. And so I think making a point to spend time with your people, making space for them, is definitely something I've held on to. 
to. I even have a certain time every week that I text everyone back. Sometimes I'm not so great at it. Most of the time I try to have dedicated time because I do think it's important to check in, connect, support, help, just be an ear in all the ways that's possible in today's current climate. Are you a phone call person? Yeah, I'm a voice note phone call person. I'm a terrible texter. But when I am in texting mode, I am a wild texter. I've sent you 37 texts. 37 <laughs> texts or no texts are kind of the options for me. Or disparate voice notes that are kind of connected but not really. Or a phone call but only at that exact time. You know, are you free right now in this current moment? And then we can have a three-hour phone call. Sort of how I move these days. Yeah, I'm having more friends send me voice messages and I kind of liken it to an adult version of walkie-talkie. Absolutely. There's a playfulness to it and a nice kind of surprise and opportunity to slow down and listen. And I think on the subject of conversation and again, something that's been so central to what you've built, I'm curious to hear about your relationship with listening. Have you always Mm -hmm. been a good listener or what's something that you've had to learn? I think this goes back to the middle child situation I referenced earlier. (laughs) Um, I think middle children are born listeners. You're kind of that's sort of how you come into the world. And I would say maybe just maybe not being the first born. I think that I've always been a good listener. I think that I enjoy listening. My favorite thing is to be in a group of people and just be taking in the conversation and stories and adding in when, when relevant. But, you know, my calling was never to be in the forefront of what, what what's happening. I'm very back end. And I think that I have made friends with really good listeners. I'm partnered with a really good listener. And so I think I've prioritized people who are good listeners in my life. It allows for deeper conversations when you know that the person is actually taking in what you're sharing and sort of sitting with it a bit versus sort of the high, fast response we've gotten very used to with technology is always there, right? If I want immediate gratification, I know exactly where to go. But if I want sort of this deeper, almost silence, right? Being okay with sharing something and having no one respond outside of, I hear that, I am taking that in. It's something that I've learned to treasure more and more. Yeah, that really resonates. Part of the reason why I started Slow Stories as a podcast is because I had spent so much time sort of operating in the digital space, whether it was posting, writing, texting, and I got to a point where I felt like I was losing my physical voice. Mm -hmm. Even when I'm having conversations like this, I still have to fight that reflex almost to fill the space, even if something my interviewee has said or my guest has said requires a little bit of stillness and silence. So. I think it's something we'll have to practice all of our lives, just given the state of the world and the expectation to always sort of meet the moment, if that makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. And I feel that in this interview as well of not needing to say more than what I'm thinking, this feeling to sort of like, just keep going because well, I've already started is something that I've been to practice specifically with my team and meetings. I now unmute and say, looks great, mute myself. <laughs> you know, I don't have to go in further just because. And I think that's something that I was plagued with for a very long time. And I've started to rebuke and reject it. And it is a practice for sure, but it's something that I am proud of that I say what I mean and absolutely nothing else. I mean, that's great. And I'm glad to hear now you don't feel the need to perform in a sense. It's always interesting Mm -hmm. talking to founders. Something that I've noticed is just this kind of need to tell a story in a certain way because somebody on the other side is expecting it delivered. 
in a certain Mm -hmm. way. So yeah, it's just something that's kind of humming in the back of my mind when I'm starting these conversations. You know, you mentioned your team. I think it'd be a good time to formally Mm -hmm. introduce your professional path a little bit so people know (laughs) what we're talking about. So I'd love to have you just give that background. I am the founder of Somewhere Good. We are a platform for conversations on your phone and IRL. What that means is we have an iOS app in which you engage in thoughtful communal conversations with people around the world. And then we have physical spaces, which is currently one, where you can bring those conversations to life. And what was your path leading up to starting Somewhere Good? Oh, chaos. <laughs> um, working at a lot of startups where I talked a lot about nothing and did a lot that didn't actually execute into anything. I spent a lot of time looking to make real estate more interesting, accessible. I would say those are the two biggest aspects of what I did. And, and generally what I noticed was I was often the only Black queer person in the room. And often the things that I felt were important and vital to the product's success was not seen as important and vital as the rest of the team. So sort of just often found myself at odds. And this was back in 2019. I started Ethel's Club, which was a co-working space for creatives, specifically centering people of color. And that was me just looking for community, me looking to pour a lot of what I had been sort of wrestling with and not having the opportunity to build into reality at previous companies, to build it into fruition. And yeah, we, we started Ethel's Club back in 2019. COVID happened, shut down Ethel's Club built some more good off of a lot of the learnings from Apple's Club, but also seeing a much larger opportunity in that we're not as connected as we could be and powers that be like it that way, but we wanted to build an alternative. While we were building the app, we had our website be sort of like a stumble upon where you could stumble upon different communities that centered things outside of almost like traditional capitalist lens. And so anything that felt inherently community driven and you would click take me somewhere good and it would take you to a website that we thought could bring you joy could make you feel more connected could make you feel more seen etc yeah seeing the build up to what you've created now i'd love to talk a little bit about the sort of sensory choices and the vision i just noticed mm. that there are so many parallels and how we both kind of portray slowing down and connecting i mean specifically Mm -hmm. through worlds and nature. And for slow Mm -hmm. stories, I was personally interested in capturing the slow growth and the changes that have been informing our lives both online and off. And I see some of that in what you're doing and it's so beautiful. So I'm curious how you kind of arrived at that decision to use nature and plants and the language and the visual choices around Somewhere Good's experience. Yeah, we spend a lot of time on the visual experience of Somewhere Good. I have a very brilliant team. Um, Our creative team is led by Annika Hansen-Azora, who truly just sees the world in a different way. And so building alongside them has been magical because, you know, we just, you know, we, we sort of have the conversation as a team of we need to build a social platform that makes people feel better connected to themselves and to others. And then it's sort of like, okay, now what, (laughs) you know, what does that actually mean? And so we sort of went through a laundry list of things that we had either pulled from research or our own personal relationship to current platforms, what we like, what we don't like, what could be better. And the thing that we sort of kept coming back to was how the platform makes you feel already encourages a, a type of behavior. And so for example, if you're given, the first thing you see is a, a video with noise playing, you're immediately dragged into a noisy landscape that's potentially erratic. And then the next choice you have is to just flip to another one, which has now kind of put you in this space that is not calming, doesn't give you a lot of ownership over 
what you're doing while you're on the platform and other things like that. So we kind of had a laundry list of what we don't like, what doesn't bring us joy. And from that built out what could bring us joy. And so moving towards slower aspects of what that visual journey could look like and what that behavior could trigger. So for example, the first screen you see on Somewhere Good encourages you to take a deep breath. That's pointed. You've probably come from another platform that has maybe had you holding your breath and you maybe haven't even realized where you can sort of take a beat before diving in, which also kind of allows you to settle before engaging in a conversation, which is how conversations should be engaged with. It is not often that in, you know, away from keyboard or in real life that you are rushing, rushing and then engaging in conversation with a stranger. I don't think that happens to many people. And so one of our big almost places to work from was mimicking a dinner party, in which case you are welcomed in, you can take a second, you take off your coat, you find your place, you maybe get a drink or a snack, you then are introduced by someone that you care about to another person, like this sort of like, there are so many steps in, in a dinner party, and yet you walk away feeling fed both socially, literally, intellectually, and you sort of can't wait to come back for more, but it's not immediate. You can't just go to another dinner party. And a lot of that visual plays well in terms of how we built somewhere good to be slower, to be rooted in nature, in sort of videos that have a flower blowing or a leaf blowing, to sort of mentally change what we should interact with before engaging with one another, which I think we've lost sight of a bit. Absolutely. I've loved getting acquainted with the Learning Garden, which is on mm. Summer Goods website. Came across a really striking article written by Legacy Russell called Resync, mm -hmm. Networking Slowly and the Fast of Digital. And there is a paragraph that I'd love to share. It's the last paragraph in the essay. Legacy writes, I'm curious about making, quote, collaboration less dreamy and idealistic. I'm curious about repacing our understanding of, quote, digital time by prompting us to move with slowness through fast material and asking us to sit with information before we contribute to it, pushing the collective group to think about its role in stewarding exchange as a model that cannot be unified, but as a model that needs to exist in pieces and move at different rhythms, possibilities of autonomous being that acknowledges authentically that no two individuals are individual in the same way nor should they have to be. It's such an incisive read overall that sort of reimagines when we opt into connecting and really makes a case for the timing needs to be right. I'm wondering how this idea of community building has informed your relationship with Pace or vice versa. Community building has informed everything that we do and that I do personally. And I think in regards to specifically, communities have existed long before we had Facebook, long before we had the internet, long before we had cities. And I think that the damage that has been done by larger incumbent platforms in terms of how we believe we need to connect has, it's made our, our understanding of how fast things should move incorrect. I was talking with a good friend the other day and she said, no one needs groceries in five minutes. There isn't a logical reason in which you need it in five minutes. Sure, we can make the case for 30, I guess. But generally, you don't need it in five minutes. And so this sort of instant gratification, instant need, we need it tomorrow, feeling that we have with platforms like Amazon, also live in platforms like the larger incumbent social platforms that we often use. And when you are building a community of real, live humans and people, 
it's complex and it's nuanced and it deserves the space and time to breathe and to come together and to fall apart and to come back together and to reassign and, and redo and co-create. Like there's so many things that need to happen and none of that should be fast. One could argue that by doing it fast, you're going to get it very, very wrong. And I think that has been represented across many, many platforms that try to urgently bring people together under the guise of community without actually paying attention to what community actually feels and looks like for it to be a community that works end quote i think pacing is important when navigating the internet at large there's a lot of information there is a lot of stuff i mean you have an index of the world we should not be moving through that at the speed of light it, it requires time to sit in it to step away um, a lot of the, the things that legacy mentioned i think were important i mean they almost had to be right you couldn't read through 30 encyclopedias at the speed of light. You kind of had to sit with it. I think it's a bit backwards now. And so community building is something that I've spent a lot of time doing. And I've seen how it can go wrong if one does not pace themselves. And so when building somewhere good, a lot of the product features and or experience is slow. There are four conversations a day. We don't need more than that, actually. We maybe don't even need four. <laughs> the conversations last for a whole day. You don't have to immediately tap in because it'll be gone or you know, save it because the algorithm is going to send you down another path, in which case you'll never find it again. Those four conversations last for 24 hours, and then they are done. And then the next day, there are four new conversations, and that will just continue to happen. <laughs> and you know, at one point, we didn't have any conversations because we didn't have and internet, and now there are millions that one could be in. And I don't think more is always the answer. I think sometimes less and slower is the correct answer. And, you know, some are good trying to figure that out as an alternative to the many, many platforms that exist. Do as many people care about that as we do, I think is the other thing, right? We've all been using these fast-paced platforms for so long. What does it mean like to put ourselves on a platform that requires less of us? And because of that, there is less to do and potentially less to engage with, but seeing that as a positive. Mm -hmm. I often wonder if the digital age is good for introverts. I know it's necessary, mm -hmm. but it, you know, is it nourishing? And on that note, what is the role of solitude in the work that you're doing? Where does that show up, if at all? Solitude shows up, I think, in that a lot of the prompts that exist on Submergen, the four sort of conversation starters that we have, often require people to be solitude in their response before responding, if responding at all. We've removed traditional metrics of what engagement looks like. You don't need to respond, actually. You can answer in your head. You can write about it in your journal. You can bring it up when you're hanging out with your friends at their house, you can just think about it all day and not actually engage in the app. And that's also okay. We've had many, many people who we've talked to who use somewhere good and have said it serves various purposes in their lives, whether or not it's to connect with themselves and, and or to others. And again, that was a very purposeful choice on our end of you don't get extra points if you leave a voice note, unless the point is you want to talk to someone else, but there's no likes. There's nothing to win. <laughs> There's no gamification of it. And so I think in that space, when we're upon removing the, the gamification aspects that are represented on many other platforms, you encourage people to take that prompt and take it into solitude and be okay with it in silence versus the need to respond, right? I, I must tweet to be a part of this conversation and to be engaged is not something that we prioritize, which has been interesting. We've, we've had a lot of people, again, say, 
they've taken it and, and journaled with it and just kind of needed it to unlock something in, inside themselves, whether or not it was a question or, you know, something that had been on their mind that finally they felt called to respond to, I think has also been really interesting to see. Yeah, that's interesting. I was going to ask if you ever revisit prompts at a later date. We have a few times, but typically under the guise of there's more added to the conversation. So an example I'll give you is about two months ago, we asked a question that was centered around what does Black feminism mean to you? And we recently did a partnership with an organization called Black Women Radicals, who were a part of the conversation happening in some organization. We asked the same question, but now there's more sort of nuance and context as to who you're having the conversation with is a way that we have played around with that. But there are people who've asked us to bring back questions. We get that one a lot of like, I want to see where people are at on this. One of the questions that has come up a lot from people who use the Summer Good platform is this question around how do I build community? And I think it often comes up after something tragic has happened in our larger world. And there's this sort of desperation and what's my part to play? And people want to ask it of themselves, of others. And then it's sort of, we all answer it. And then time goes on and something tragic happens and we all ask it we all answer it time goes on and it's sort of this larger cycle but that is a common one that has come up a few times and unfortunately because there are tragic things that happen too often something that I think about as we kind of move through this really vicious cycle is what it means to be a good participant in a community. I think to your Mm -hmm. point of that urgency where people feel like they need to rush to the forefront, lead the charge, it's often coming Mm -hmm. from a good place, but something that gets overlooked is it's enough to just listen and participate and not feel the need to lead in the sense where you're drowning out voices that have already been established or things that need support. And so What are some of the ways you've learned to participate in a community versus building them? I think the biggest thing I've learned is I now ask, where do you need me versus where should I go? I recently joined a community called One Love Community Fridge, which helps bring extra sort of grocery items from restaurants and various places to various community fridges across Brooklyn. And it's very set up in a participatory way. You know, there's a Google spreadsheet. They have the days that things need to be picked up or they need to be dropped off and you just jot your name down. And it feels so affirming to just be able to like kind of step in line, almost like a factory line and kind of do what I need to do versus the feeling of, should I create an organization that helps bridge the gap between restaurants and community fridges when, you know, a variety of them exist? And I think that kind of goes back to this sort of creator-centric world we live in now, right? Everyone needs to create, but there isn't enough conversation around what about how everyone really just kind of needs to participate <laughs> and we just need to help and support the various organizations, communities that do exist, that have been doing the work and just play a small part versus a larger one. And I think a lot of things make that all a larger issue. And I think we, we saw that with the recent sort of Roe v. Wade decision on people starting things and not finding what already existed. And yeah, I, I think for me, I participate a lot. I started this one thing and that's that's more than enough for me. I am so happy to add my name to a list. I am so happy to just be told what to do. I will just show up, tell me the time where I have to be and I will be there. 
goes back to the listening. I wonder too if it's our generation's tendency towards perfectionism, this need to do everything perfectly all at once, or if it's coming from a place of fear, there's a feeling that it'll never be enough unless you make yourself known. I think it's that. I also think it's we have a we being the very large collective we with a capital W have a warped sense of almost like there's less power in participating, only power in being the creator which is very, very untrue. I mean, big things only happen because many people participate. You can only make change by literally having participants. Otherwise, you have one person. And I think we've lost that connective tissue between what it means to really be communally engaged with one another and that there shouldn't really be a larger power contract if we're all just trying to get the fridges full and that's the focus versus one must create to be a part of solving, you know, a problem or an issue, which is something we think a lot about somewhere good and are encouraged by what we've seen so far to make it easier for people to participate by making as many things known and aware. So if you have the feeling of, I would love to start a community fridge, we're like, but wait, there's 17 in Brooklyn, you know? <laughs> How can you make sure they are stopped all the time? Uh, Sort of reminder for people. Yeah. I mean, I think it comes back to asking those questions, you know, as you continue to build the community, create prompts that foster those conversations. I'm wondering if there is a particular question that you hope people will start asking you more often, whether it's in the context of somewhere good, life, creativity. I think for a while, I've personally and definitely professionally been stuck on this idea of just like, what does co-creation look like for me? Sort of viewing everything through the lens of community. And I think going back to my thoughts on, you know, a creator-driven world that we live in, how do we make it feel more communal? And so I think definitely, you know, how can I put myself in a space to co-create and or just simply create alongside and with others. As you mentioned with the perfectionism angle, a lot of people feel like they do have to do things alone. There's absolutely no reason why that has to be. But I think it it requires reframing almost everything. Can I do this with the support of another person? If I'm having a dinner, can I ask people for more help than I usually do? That is a call into myself. If I know a friend is building a website, can I be supportive and and help them co-create that into reality? And so I think asking, well, no, I think I almost just quoted JFK by accident. But the, the, the ask not what your country can do for you, but what you should do for your country um, <laughs> is, is not where I was fully going. But but yes, you know, not no to that. Um, but but what what can you what can you do for people, and how can you do it alongside others? I think is something we should be asking ourselves now, and I think we will continue to be asking ourselves. But I implore people to think about it across their life and to just ask you know I've definitely been someone who who struggles with asking for help support even in terms of something that I know my friends would love to partake in with this feeling of oh but we're also busy and the world at large (laughs) there are things happening but I've learned again both personally professionally that every time I have asked how can I build this from a communal lens it's been one billion times better than if I had done the alone. Absolutely. I mean, I think we've just seen how dangerous ego can be. And if we don't mm-hmm. let some of these things go, we're just going to continue imploding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think in order to do that and to ask those questions, paying attention is so key. 
And so I'd love to close things out by talking about attention and having you share what you hope to pay more attention to in the coming months. I would like to pay more attention to my body. I do not listen to my body enough. My body is very communicative (laughs) about how it is feeling, how it is doing. And I often find my attention elsewhere until things go south. And then, you know, it's all attention on my body. So I would like to check in more and be more mindful, starting from the moment I wake up and checking in with how I feel and all the way until I'm going to bed, how I feel are not things that I prioritize. And I often approach my body, my health, my mental state as sort of, I only pay attention when things aren't going well and seeing it as more of a continual daily practice is something I'd like to pay more attention to. I would like to share that I hope anyone who is listening spends some time or spends more time and potentially making it a practice of really checking in with themselves outside of their devices and checking in with their friends more as well. I think that there's that running joke that we are constantly in unprecedented times, but we are. And I think in that we need each other more. And so just honoring that as much as possible is something I'd like to offer to everyone and something I'm trying to embed as a practice myself. That actually just prompted one final question. How do you recognize that you are somewhere good? I think there's this feeling of constantly striving and that's good. We always need to be kind of looking and aware of the potential, but in terms of being present, how do you know when you've arrived somewhere good? You've arrived somewhere good when you feel comfortable and open, curious and seen, but I think most of all at peace. Austin, founder of Somewhere Good. You can learn more about Somewhere Good online at somewheregood.com and follow them on social at Somewhere Good World. You can also follow Naj on social at Naj Austin. Stay tuned as we'll be sharing highlights from this episode on our own channels at Slow Stories Official on Instagram and at Slow Stories Pod on Twitter. I'm Rachel Schwartzman and you've been listening to Slow Stories. Thank you so much for tuning in. 